Welcome to the LEO Business Podcast, sponsored by LEO Networks, Ireland's leader in business connectivity. I'm your host, Joe Lynham, News Talks Business Editor. By sponsoring this podcast, LEO Networks aims to equip businesses of all sizes with insights from industry leaders, addressing today's most pressing challenges and fostering informed decision making and empower you with the knowledge you need to thrive in this digital age. Today, we have a wonderful guest, Gronja Madden, who is the founder of GMJ Associates and who lectures MBA students in ESG, which, if you didn't know, stands for Environment, Social and Governance. Can I start with a really simple question? What is ESG? Okay. Um, ESG, and I think maybe just to back to backpedal a little bit, it's been, I thought I've lectured and worked with more than just ESG and a broader sort of, I suppose, focus on responsible corporate behaviour. But ESG, what it stands for is environmental, social and governance. So the idea is that organisations, that you know, businesses should be focused on these three different areas and not purely on, I suppose, the profit motive. Mm. So probably what we would have referred to in the old days as CSR or corporate social responsibility has now, I think, seeged more into, fo- into a focus on ESG, which I think is a good thing. Okay, well, let's break it into the three component parts, environmental, mm-hmm. social and governance. Can I put environmental at the end and come to social? Yeah. Um, are you saying that companies, when they have their ESG targets, have also social targets? And what what are realistic social targets for companies to have? Well, when we're looking at the social pillar, we're looking at things like how do we treat our workforce? Uh, how do we... How do we look after our customers? How do we make sure that consumers get great products and services from us? What are we doing to innovate, to make things better for consumers, to make things better for society? Are we, um, you know, ensuring that, for example, we've got good labour practices throughout our entire supply chain, not just in our own workforce? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of different areas in terms of social. I see a lot of people see social as very focused on employees. I would see it as much broader than that. So, for example, if you're in the clothing business, you know, the rag trade, you don't want to be sourcing clothes that's made in a sweatshop by children. Mm -hmm. Or indeed that it wasn't made under sweatshop conditions by an adult either or, you know, people who are maybe slave laboured. So it's and that is probably the thing that most people think of, certainly when I, I speak to my students when I kind of bring this subject up, the first thing they'll say is sweatshops and child labour. They're the things that they associate with that social Everyone strand. Everyone associate those things. But mm. talk to us about slightly more mundane things that could be categorised under social. Um, well, I suppose the, the obvious one is how do you treat your employees? Are you looking after them effectively? Are you making sure they're getting the right training for the job? Are you making sure that there's good uh, policies around equality and diversity? No bullying, maternity leave, does that... All All of those things, exactly. Good employment practices, essentially. And of course, that's going to benefit the organisation by actually uh, retaining good staff as well. So it's it's there is a virtuous circle kind of in this as well. But it's also things like, um, you know, your, your product or service development. Are you creating great products and, you know, great innovation for your customers? Mm. Um, are you doing things in a way that you're you're not landing maybe your local community with a problem because of the way that, in which you're transporting product or, or way you're manufacturing? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Which then ties, of course, into the environmental section, too. But all of these, you know, these overlap and tie together. So on the social side of things, would it be fair to say that that is become a real issue for those people who are seeking work, seeking employment, that they are holding at the moment, they're holding the whip hand. 
we're in a, a, a low unemployment, high employment environment, and employers are desperate for staff. And so employees say, well, here's my checklist that I want you to have. And I think it's more than just that social strand. I think um, certainly from what uh, clients and others are telling me, when they're um, hiring staff, they are being asked some fairly tough questions across all of the strands of ESG, actually, not just the social one. Mm. It's not all about how am I going to be treated as an employee? It's also actually, you know, what are the values in this place? What's the culture here? Uh, what, what are you doing, actually, about some of these big global problems? Am I going to feel proud of working here? Those Is that going to be a problem, though, for smaller companies? Let's say you have yeah. far fewer than 50 staff. You don't necessarily have an HR department. You might have one person who does HR uh, and you've got all this requirements. It's okay for a giant company with thousands of staff that have got a whole yeah. wing that look after all of that. It is going to be an issue for an SME, isn't it? Um, it yes and no. Actually, I think there's a lot of opportunity there for SMEs. And again, I speak to SMEs and, and in fact, would love to work with more SMEs because I think there's, there's vast opportunities for them to really make their mark in this area because they tend to be very, maybe a bit more mission focused sometimes. They're, you know, very driven by a particular values and culture set. So all of those things are often actually in place already and they can build on them well. Um, I spoke to somebody actually only last week. I had a coffee with an ex-student of mine um, and they're in a startup um, situation where they have grown to, I think, around sort of 35, 40 people in the last year or so. But he talked about how actually they're doing it from the ground up. The staff are actually very actively involved in saying what's important to this organisation and what's important to us. So he, he sees it as very much a collaborative thing. It doesn't have to be a department or even a board actually kind of cracking the whip and saying this is what we're going to do. That you can also um, harness a lot of enthusiasm from does, staff. Does working from home come under the S category? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's certainly there's a lot of health and safety issues around working from home. There's a whole issues around culture, working hours, uh, potentially. Yeah. Making sure people aren't working too long. Um, I think the socialization, I think the, the culture piece has been a really big problem for organizations. That's certainly what I'm hearing from, you know, those in management um, that they are struggling to kind of build a cohesive culture. And it's so important for that. To Especially if half the workforce are out on a Monday and a Friday, if not three quarters are out on a Monday, Friday working from home. Yeah. Well, I think what they're finding is that there's a, they're trying to get more organized in getting people together on certain days and, and having a kind of key days where the, where people are together. But also, I think there can be actually a lot of creativity in this in terms of, you know, working from home doesn't mean you have to be actually isolated. You know, working from home, you can still create ways in which people can brainstorm and chat and have a, have a virtual coffee. I know for some people, they may be completely sick of that. And I think you've got to judge the temperature in the room mm -hmm. or out of the room. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think we should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we learned a lot from COVID and we had so many opportunities we need to, to keep on going with those things. Absolutely. And I suspect working from home is here with us to a certain extent, hybrid working mm. uh, to stay. But interesting enough, there's been quite a few big name companies that have completely U-turned on this issue, that during lockdowns, they said, absolutely, you work from home if you need to, no mm. sweat. Even Zoom, which is the byword of working from home, has ordered its staff to come back in. Mm. So mm. bosses have changed their mind on that thing. How, you know, how do you prevent well, go, that? Well, to go back to your, your point about, you know, uh, pretty much full employment and, and employees having a great deal of power in this conversation, certainly 
what I'm hearing on the ground when I'm talking to bosses of organizations is that one of the first questions they're asked is, what's your policy on hybrid working? And if they say we're insisting everybody has to be in, people are actually literally walking, getting up and saying, right, see you. Wow. You know, um, so it is it's because I think it's quite difficult to insist upon and still get the talent. Certainly, that's what I'm hearing. Um, will in that white, change? In white collar jobs, I suspect. Of course. I mean, you know, that's manufacturing jobs, obviously, is very. Yeah. And okay. that's and that's always been a difficulty because yeah. those jobs they, do require you physically people. need to be there. They require people to be there. Let's move on to the final. Fine, we will go back to E for environment, uh, but governance. Tell me more about what governance is what is required from companies and what employees want from their employer. Okay. Well, again, I suppose from the governance point of view, what you're looking at, and again, I keep on saying culture and values, but that's, you know, the board senior management should be setting the tone in terms of culture and values. And that really sets the tone for all of this. It's also about things like how you're monitoring and, you know, how you're strategizing around all of the other relevant issues that are coming under environmental and social for your organization. Mm. It's around making sure you've got proper monitoring, making sure you've got proper process and policies. We're back to the whistleblowing and protect disclosure policies, making sure that you're measuring the right things and making sure you're understanding um, what's important in your organization, that you're even things like I would suggest things like maybe um, lobbying, um, you know, which would probably come into the social strand as well, yeah. where you know companies sometimes have to make a decision. We actually need to to be engaged in lobbying for the right behaviour or for the right incentives to be put in place by government. I'm guessing diversity of boards comes under governance as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, though some could say that might stray into social, uh, but These, there's there. Is, I don't think there's any hard lines here. Exactly. You know. Um, so diversity of boards is a challenge mm-hmm. um, for obvious reasons. Um, there has been a major problem getting women into senior, senior roles. Um, How serious are companies about that? Well, I would say for a start, the diversity of boards is a lot more than just women. Yeah. Um, And in fact, looking at the stats, there's been quite a lot of success in getting women onto Mm. boards. Um, There are some typical kind of structural problems that have prevented that in the past. The ideal board member tended to be an ex-CEO. We didn't mm-hmm. have that many female CEOs to, who, you know, to fill that that role. I think boards are getting better at realizing that they don't necessarily have to hire for someone having had a certain position, but more for the experience, mm-hmm. and realizing that it's also about diversity of thought, diversity of of how you approach problems, uh, diversity of skill sets, and as I said, experience. But I think it's also about more. It's about you know things like. Um, ethnicity. It's about the type of upbringing you had. It's about the type of education you had. Um, it's sexuality. Uh, yeah, race. and actually, I would also say, um, increasingly, I'm getting concerned that we're we need to be more diverse around age on boards as well, and we need to find ways of getting younger people. There's probably no hard, no. It's easy to find an older man. But not so easy to get a, get a younger person on, or indeed, yeah. not so easy to get maybe to get the approval to get a younger person onto a board. Mm. Um, so shareholders would block it? Um, I, and I think shareholders would, would possibly block it. They'd be concerned maybe about lack of experience. I had an interesting conversation a few years ago, actually, with somebody who is um, chair of a state board mm. and said to me, I really need a digital native in place on this board because otherwise we're not going to be fit for purpose. So when you say digital native, I mean, is someone who eats, sleeps and breathes well, coding? She, she wanted somebody who was really ideally at that point in their early 30s. No, she wasn't. I think going to get it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there there would have been the appetite. Someone who had never heard of a fax machine. Exactly. Right. Um, but her point was that if she didn't have that kind of um, 
experience on the board, there was a danger she feared that the board would make decisions that weren't future proofed. All right. Um, I thought it was a really interesting perspective. Yeah. You know, and it really made me think a lot more about what diversity on the board means. I just wonder means. when you get that 30 year old digital native mm. and are familiar with coding and they're sitting around a board and there might be 11 people around the board all with oodles of experience whether that voice would actually be heard and that was always the argument actually used in terms of women on boards was and that's one of the reasons for the 30 percent club which mm-hmm. you may have heard of because it was reckoned that you needed at least 30 percent uh representation on the board in order to for a voice to be heard for it not to be drowned out all right okay. so yeah, it's a very valid point that you make yeah at the same time you don't want a board that is so com- uh, huge that it's completely unwieldy yeah because the chairman's really going to struggle at that point, chairperson. Mm. Uh, let's go back to the first one, environment. Because people, when people think of ESG, they mostly ignore the S and the G. So that's why I, I left it to the very end. Mm. Um, greenwashing is an issue, I presume. How important is the environment now in relation to ESG? Is it the as third as important or is it half or is it only 10%? Or oh, do you ask me to put percentages on that? That's, no, <laughs> that's a really tough one. You don't need to um, do I think you're, you're absolutely right. When, when you say ESG, a lot of people do, they, they focus completely on the E, mm. the environmental. Um, I think there's some really good reasons why that's the case. Um, I suppose you could argue it probably is actually our most pressing global problem. And mm. um, that is the, the, the biggest issue of our lifetime. Um, I think there's other reasons why as well. I think for a start, there's a lot of measurement that can be done around the E. You know, you can measure carbon, you can measure water, you can measure pollution, you can measure noxious gases, where maybe some other measurements are are more nebulous. tricky. Yeah, but nebulous, that's a good word. Um, I think there's another actually very sound reason why there's been a huge focus on the E and why we're seeing a focus in reporting on the E. And that has been to do with legislation. Um, so particularly in Europe with the um, EU Green Deal, uh, the focus there is on, um, I suppose, essentially looking for the investment to chase the good behaviour. Mm-hmm. So the focus is on a taxonomy which will uh, classify activities that are environmentally good um, and that will enable good comparability and for investors to actually see the risks and opportunities. And I think that opportunity word is a very important one across all of the strands, across the E, the S and the G. Mm-hmm. This is not about what you can't do and what you mustn't do or a big stick to beat you. This is also about actually looking for opportunity to solve problems. And I suppose this is the angle I come from. It's always been my passion that we need big companies to solve big problems. One of the biggest um, wealth companies or fund managers in the world is BlackRock run mm-hmm. by Larry Fink. He played a huge role in establishing ESG credentials in terms of the companies that he, with his trillions of dollars mm. to invest, would invest. Yeah. Now, in recent years, and I'm talking in the last 18 to 24 months, there has been a bit of a rowing back yeah. on ESG requirements, mm. i.e. investors are once again, because of rising interest rates, starting to chase profit mm-hmm. rather than do the right thing. Are you worried that that could mushroom, that problem, that that focus gets diluted and blurred? Um, I'm not. I, th- I think there's a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, certainly COVID didn't do us any favours. It took attention away. Ukraine war. Has, has has again taken attention from this and understandably so. Um, people look for what they see as safe harbour. I actually don't think that a lot of sort of, you know, fossil fuel companies are particularly safe harbour. I think they're actually highly risky 
because you're potentially you know, investing in what would be stranded assets. And yet they did very well in 2022. I yeah, I agree. And I, But I think that was because of other pressures that, that was quite short term. I do think that the move towards um, encouraging investment in the greener activities is a very positive move into the future. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we've seen, haven't we, that a lot of activists, we've seen students in, in universities putting pressure that, you know, not to invest in fossil fuels and mm. so on. And, you know, fundamentally, yeah, I, I see the point of that. The danger, of course, is if you divest from your fossil fuel investment, maybe somebody else who cares less than you about the environment will take them up and they won't actually put the pressure on That's the, the Exxons or whatever to actually change their behaviours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that we we need this, I suppose, sweet spot that I would see between uh, big business, g- government civil society and the, the, so I suppose the charity space, the NGO space, which mm-hmm. has been, I think, relied upon too much to, to solve problems in the past. We need to have that coalition to actually solve problems. And we need to, for businesses to see opportunity in the, um, the innovation that will allow us not to actually, frankly, drown or dive, desiccate in a desert and not be able to feed ourselves and not have energy security and so on. Uh, so some ground rules have been set in place uh, by the European Union, as, as you've alluded to, the CSRD, the Corporate Social Responsibility Directive. Cor- Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, yeah. Um, how strict is that? How much teeth does that actually have? Because it's very easy to introduce legislation. Politicians take the credit but policing it is not easy. And sometimes they simply don't police it because mm. it might disadvantage their companies and create unemployment if those companies can't grow. Mm. I think one of the things that's very positive about it, um, from my point of view, would be that it now gives us sort of a standard way of measuring. So this comparability comes into it. One of the, the problems in the past was sustainability reporting or CSR reporting or whatever the hell you wanted to call it, because they all had all different kinds of titles to it. Alphabet soup is. Yeah, exactly. Um, Was that there was, I think, always a temptation for organisations to focus on what made them look good and maybe drop the stuff that didn't make them look so good. So, mm. oh, we, we had a nice, we had a lovely target there for, you know, water use, but oof, we've completely blown that. So let's just forget about our water use target for this year's report. The, the CSRD won't let that happen. There has to be comparison. But who polices that? Well, you see, it, it's policed through, the, there has to be machine-readable reporting, which will enable the comparability, which enables investors to actually get a much fuller picture of risk and opportunity. So it's really being done, I think, in a very sensible way. I'll go back to it's it's getting the money to follow the good behaviour. It's encouraging the investment to go where the honesty is. And it's, you know, reporting like this is not about just you have to, everything has to be perfect. It's actually what's good reporting is where, where organisations go, yeah, actually, we did miss that target and here's why. And this is what we're doing about it, actually. And that that transparency gives a confidence to investors and enables them then to make much better risk assessment of these organisations than the ones who are going, oh, no, everything's fine. But, oh, yeah, we just we didn't bother reporting on that Mm -hmm. item this year. We're very lucky that we're in the European Union and it will be policed uh, and 27 different member states will police that. But other nations around the world are bigger uh, and care less about these issues. For example, uh, the United States has had had an ambivalent relationship with um, environmental issues. At the moment, you've got definitely a, a White House which is worried about that. But this time next year, there will be an election, and yeah. uh, that 
that policy could change rapidly and we could go back to a White House which doesn't care. We could. We could. One of the interesting things I thought from um, the previous administration was the number of companies who actually said we're doing it anyway, Mm. who actually, you know, still came out with the great innovation that still came out with, you know, pushing for better behavior. So, you know, I I try and be hopeful. Mm -hmm. There are times when it's pretty difficult in this this arena, I have to say, but I do try to be hopeful about it because I think that there's always that uh, human ingenuity and desire to do something better will win out regardless of what the legislation is or regardless of what the the administration is at the time. Um, I agree it's harder if you've got a situation where you're fighting against, competing against um, organisations that have a, have a much more lenient, say, tax regime, yeah. you know, in terms of carbon taxes or whatever. It does mean for a very uneven playing ground. And that's a huge problem. Well, even our neighbours across the Irish Sea, they've mm. relaxed their rules towards effluent yeah. uh, allowed into their rivers, which is something that wouldn't be allowed here. And that's very close neighbour. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the EU rules on carbon border adjustment, i.e. that anything that comes from outside the EEA, or European Economic Area, um, that is very carbon intensive, and I'm thinking of steel and aluminium and stuff like that, that they would have to pay a tax coming mm. into here so that countries like China, for example, and other mm. uh, countries would have to adjust how they make things lest they have to pay this tax. Yeah. Well, you see, again, that's incentivizing the right behaviour, isn't it? Mm. If it's going to be just too expensive to keep on the wrong behaviour, great. Uh, now, I'm not naive. There are, are knock-on consequences potentially for competition and for, you know, there's 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 issues in terms of carbon trading and so on within the EU and across you know across uh, different borders within the EU. So it's this is not simple stuff. But what we are seeing, I think, is a willingness to have at least a shared set of standards. I mean, okay, CSRD and the standards that go with us are European. The international standards, however, are very closely aligned. We've seen in the last 10 days or so, the Global Reporting Initiative um, announced that, you know, there was this interoperability for pretty much all of the standards that are required under CSRD as well. So companies, for example, that have been reporting to the Global Reporting Initiative standard are now very well set up for CSRD. I think when you have that kind of uh, alignment beginning to happen, that demonstrates that there is actually enough of a global push to make it a bit easier Um, and also to enable. I mean, global companies have been enabled to be able to report. One of the things, in fact, that... I think is also quite interesting out of all of this and something that I've certainly seen on the ground is, you know, the the reporting requirements legally apply to larger entities, but they're still having an impact on the smaller entities. Mm. Um, So I've had for several years, actually, I've had uh, companies come to me and say, you know, we're supplying a very large entity and they've now insisted that we report on. Can you help us? Because we don't know how to go about it. Yeah. Or a, a couple of horror stories, actually. Um, recently, I, I know of one organisation that actually lost a major UK uh, company as a customer because they didn't have the systems in place in order to report on their own supply chain. So even if you're not coming into the the, the net in terms of the CSRD, mm-hmm. it's still going to impact your organisation. So small organisations do need to put some thought into this and consider how it's going to impact them. What about this country, Ireland? Um, are we, we don't have a very large manufacturing base. We don't have a, uh, a huge kind of steel-making industry mm. or aluminium or, or uh, anything like that. 
Um, but our emissions actually went up mm. last year. Um, so a lot of people say, how does that happen if we've got mostly a white collar economy? Mm. Well, I'm, I'm not uh, in any way expert in terms of actually doing the complete analysis on the on the emissions of the country. Mm. Um, we have, of course, had a situation where more people are 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 going back to the office, as you said earlier on. And, and to more, the airport. Yeah, and definitely to the airport. There's no question about that. So, of course, there are going to be, you know, there, there are going to be a growth in emissions. And we have a, a significant agriculture um, economy as well, which means that there is emissions linked with that. Um, so we really do need to see governments incentivizing uh, organizations to invest. If you if you're running a business, you need to be assured that the investment you make in renewable energy, in making sure that your uh, facilities are future proofed, you need to be assured that that's the right investment. Mm. And I think that's been very difficult for people to to be certain that they're making the right step. They need a lot of assurance. They need a lot of cash help. Yeah, and they may need some grants to help them do it. But inevitably, a lot of these things actually do save money. I mean, way back in the day, I'm going back 15 years now when I started helping organizations with their, at the time we called it CSR reporting. Mm. Actually, the environmental bits were the easiest bits to get through the board because it generally saved money. Yeah. You know? Um, Transport and housing are two of the biggest sources of emissions, especially um, especially housing. Um, so our Irish homes are some of the leakiest and draftiest in Europe. And yet new housing standards are fantastic. And yet, but who can afford a new house? Uh, well, lots of people are buying new houses. They're building new houses. They're buying them. My husband happens to be involved in, in contingent to that industry. So he, he's very busy at the moment helping people with the final step towards their new house. And one of the comments that he makes, he, he previously did... Uh, uh, building energy assessment is the, the phenomenal standards to which so many of these new houses are built. So I think our, our big problem is actually in our old housing stock and what we do about that and the retrofitting of that and how we get people to And that to takes time and a chunk of change. Mm-hmm. To, if you want to retrofit a three-bedroom house that might have been built in 1975 or, or mm-hmm. 80, that is going to cost potentially 50 or more thousand euro. So there we come back to if you're in, in, in the, at the bigger business end of things, what can you do to innovate to help make that easier? Mm. So that social piece, because let's face it, for so many businesses, they're also having to consider um, things with, in terms of their employees. Can our, my employees actually afford to live anywhere near where I need them to be? Yeah. Can they can they get transport? Um, so all of those things, you know, it's, it's all part of that picture. And maybe you're actually in a position where you can engage in innovation. Talking to a, a board recently of a, a, a group of companies. And when we started looking into this, there was lots of innovation they could do with some of the existing projects they had, but they hadn't actually considered it until we started having that. What is ESG and how does it apply to us conversation mm. around the boardroom table? So we've discussed the E, the S and the G. There's a lot of stuff to think about. But a lot of people say, well, what's the one-stop shop? Uh, who do you call when you want to call ESG? Oh, you can obviously call me. But <laughs> obviously. Um, but I suppose I, to be serious about it, what what I find is that most people in business are recognising that ESG is important and they'll talk about it being important where they're finding a difficulty is taking the first few steps. They don't really know where to start because as I think we've seen already from our conversation here today, it's very broad. 
there's lots and lots of different elements under the E, the S and the G. And actually, it depends on your particular organization, what's going to be important for you. So there's a whole concept of this materiality and what's what's relevant for your organization. There's no kind of one size fits all that you can apply to any organization. So one of the things that I do typically with boards or senior management teams is actually take them through the various different elements that might be under each of those strands Mm -hmm. and probe with them. You know, how does this relate to you? Is there because sometimes people will say, well, you know, a certain topic has nothing to do. I don't think it has any relevance to us. But then when you start probing into it, they go, oh, I hadn't thought about it from a different angle. Mm. Um, so it's really about getting the creative juices going and getting people actually thinking a bit more broadly rather than maybe simply thinking, OK, environment, well, that just means uh, carbon and uh, social. That means you know, uh, supply chains and, and sweatshop labor and uh, governance. Well, sure, our board does that, don't they? Yeah, there's, there's a lot more to it. So um, apart from Gronia Madden, the obvious uh, first choice, um, where else should they think about? Uh, local enterprise offices, for example, Enterprise Ireland, the, the state? Um, there certainly are some, if people are struggling with their environmental measurement, which I think for a lot of particularly smaller businesses, this is extremely challenging. It's a, it's a difficult area. There is actually a... Um, a tool a, a, on a government website, the name of which completely escapes me right this second, mm. um, that you can use to actually um, estimate your um, various different, yeah, your footprint and others, other things as well, which is useful. Um, because I, one of the things that people find challenging is that there's a lot of measurement. There's a lot of, you know, how am I going to do all of this? In, in some of the reporting, you may not be able to always get the exact measurement, but you can do a best guesstimate. And there are tools to help you do that. Um, and it's all about being transparent and saying, you know, we're not absolutely sure of what, of, of what our particular measurement in maybe noxious gases is, but this is our best guess made using certain type of tool. Um, so it's, it's the whole point here is transparency and gaining confidence and learning and moving it on. You're not going to be perfect the first time around, but you can at least take the first steps towards working out the most important things for your organisation to focus on perfect way to end the podcast. Thanks, Gronje. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of the LEO podcast. We hope you found our discussion as captivating as we did. Remember, our journey through the realms of connectivity, technology and business continues. LEO Networks, with 25 years of serving Irish businesses, offers a unique next-day installation and connectivity service. So stay tuned for more thought-provoking episodes that promise to empower you with the knowledge and inspiration you need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts.